0: Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Though I don't know the language, I always enjoy hearing Norwegian being spoken aloud and listening for the ancestry it shares with English. After being acclimated to the sounds of foreignness, a cognate will inevitably surprise me. I've wondered whether these shared parts of our lexical tree might help explain why Norwegian authors like Ibsen, Nesbu, and, Knausgar have not only become sensations within the English language literary world, but have often redefined it. Or maybe people just think the gloomy stuff is interesting, like the things you think but you don't say. I don't know. But John Foss's experimental novel Septology, a seven-part work that will be published in English in three volumes, feels similarly groundbreaking. The novel unfolds in one long rhythmic sentence and dances between the familiar and strange, the finished and unfinished, and the material and spiritual. And though that might sound daunting, it's remarkably easy to read. In the August issue, Wyatt Mason reviewed the first five parts of Foss's Septology, and he joined me to discuss Foss's unique style and the ways in which these books exceed our ideas about what the novel can do. You write about Septology as a book that, quote, like all great novels, somehow exceeds our prior idea of what a novel is. And you go on naturally, the pleasures of plot and character, subject, and setting draws us into novels broadly, but a great novel draws us to a shadow tale at its heart, the story of its style, end quote. So can you say more about this? Like the, the idea of the story of style and why story? In what way does style present us with a story of its own, as opposed to merely being a quality or an aspect of the work? Well,
1: that's an easy question to answer. Haha. <laughs> so <laughs> the most straightforward way to begin this is the way this conversation began for me.
0: There was an interview
1: that Proust gave, uh, just as the first volume of, of In Search of Lost Time was coming out, in which he talks about, since he'd already been received as a noted stylist uh, because he published before he uh, was interviewed in a newspaper and he said one of the misconceptions and i'm paraphrasing now about a writer and what makes them distinctive is we talk about style and he explains that a lot of people feel that style is about surface effects the kinds of words you use the kinds of sounds that you make the kinds of rhythms that show up and he said that Those are all, of course, part of the pleasure of what we get when we read a novel and also when we write. But he said that style is something different. He says it's like the color sense in painters. And he says it's a quality of vision. So in that way, since you know, Proust is talking about that from the the point of view of a practitioner of the novel, we understand, I think, that stories are familiar, um, one of the reasons we enjoy hearing them is and reading them is because they are descriptions in some way of the world in which we live reframed by an artist. And the way it's reframed is by the quality of vision, to use Bruce's phrase, of the particular person who is perceiving the world and trying to in some way translate it to the page. So it's expected and uh, welcome for a reader to receive a novel that uh, tells a story. How that story is told, however, is always through the, the quality of vision of the particular novelist. And so style, so-called, is a way of seeing. And in that way, when we read a novel, we're receiving a different mind's reaction to and translation of the world before them. So in that way, the novel is new for us each time we read it if we're in the presence of somebody who sees originally and you know this gets into the questions of what seeing originally is and that's very abstract until you actually read a novel and one thing that guy davenport who used to write for harpers and who passed away in 2004 and considered to be one of the great critics of the 20th century he said very simply If we go to read Dickens with the expectations we have when reading Joyce, we will not enjoy Dickens any more than we would if we go to Joyce expecting Dickens. And so, you know, some people can't help being themselves on the page. Some people can't help being other people on the page. And one of the digs against John Updike, say James Wood said, you know, he was a fine pupil of Nabokov, which is an extremely dismissive way of saying that he wasn't very original in his style. His way of looking at the world was in the way Nabokov looked at the world. However, he looked at different things. So then we get into a debate over does it matter how you see or is it what you're focused on? And, you know, that is an, an answer that each novel gets a chance to try to offer a, a vision of.
0: Yeah. And, one line that particularly stuck out from your view and I think sums up the experience of reading septology or at least the first two sections of it is that the voice, the narration is a brain voice, not a written record and that there is this rhythm and sort of there are these organic repetitions, not like a mathematical repetition that you might find in like, something more um classically minimalist like this is sort of the ongoing internal monologue everyone has but yet it's so unique to sort of see it on the page and done in this way that's not like a trick and the narration is kind of a negation of self and it offers, in some in some ways, it offers an argument that we're all connected, you know, with the narrata- narrator being Asle, his friend being named Asle, his neighbor being named Aslake, his wife being named Alsa, Alsa, you know, again, these same <laughs> same letters over and all these adives over and over and over again. But then there are other parts that, you know, he kind of casts doubt on this unified idea of humanity, this unified notion of the fact that all of us who are thinking, oh, we share this, you know, rambling, perhaps rambling as I am now, internal monologue. Like when when Asli, the narrator, is talking about you can't really actually share someone's pain. You can't actually share with someone's suffering. And this narration, I feel like, can be read a number of different ways. And in your review, you sort of find this religious because religion is such a huge component of this, do you feel like there are other potential, perhaps secular interpretations of this manner of address, the way of addressing the reader, of leading the reader through this very small textured narrative or rather an experience of this man's consciousness?
1: The first thing to say is that this is a novel that's written after modernism. And when, you know, the now discredited Charlie Rose asked David Foster Wallace on his show, you know, David, what is postmodernism? Wallace just said, no, 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 I'm I'm not, I'm not touching that. And then when pushed, he said, fine, after modernism, moving on. And (laughs) so the the question of modernism's concerns and then postmodernism, if we think of it as just after modernism, is writers read, Stuff by James Joyce and Virginia Woolf and Gertrude Stein and Ezra Pound and Samuel Beckett and and they went, wow, that's that's a different way of, of thinking about things. And we can say certainly that the idea of an interior monologue made most famous by Joyce in the final section of Ulysses, where Joyce adopts the inner world of Molly Bloom, and you know attempts to produce somehow a, a vision. Of what it's like to think for a particular person, in this case a woman, who has been up until that point voiceless in the novel and around whom the novel has, at least at its plot, circulated. Because it's a, I mean, if you want to reduce it to something, there's an adultery, which of course is one of the things that the novel was always interested in, because the novel's always interested in the relationship of people together, often men and women. And as the novel was a middle class, you know, upper middle class form, which was at the time mostly read by women of a certain socioeconomic attainment, it catered to was the idea of feminine concerns. All these were novels written by men, which tells you they weren't feminine concerns at all. It was just they were feminine consumers. We're interested in people, okay? So if a hundred years ago the novel was starting to think about Well, how do we actually kind of go inside in a different way? Because, you know, I am born, begins David Copperfield. We're getting a confident voice that's attempting to tell the story of the self through an ordered, organized, written narration. The idea that this is something that you can set down and that we're going to put on our best clothes and we're going to perform ourselves on the page, conscious of the idea that we're writing or that we're thinking it out. And so when you ask about brain voice, it, you know the distinction I'm just trying to make is some first-person narrations are put forward as documents that are written. Some first-person narrations, and in fact, more of them, at least in my experience, are put forward as magically someone is telling a story and there's no preoccupation with whether it's written or not. And so Lolita, and in fact, pretty much all of Nabokov's novels in English, mean, Lolita, Pale Fire, Ada. These are all books in which, you know, we understand that we're reading a text. And Nabokov wants us to understand that we're reading a text because, and this gets to the question of reliability, which is a kind of an old saw when talking about novels. But Nabokov made us aware in those novels that we can't really trust a narrator. And in fact, all narrations of, of a postmodern kind become detective stories where we're trying to figure out, say, can we trust this person? Now, the reason that we can't trust people is because people are unreliable when they think divergent thoughts. One moment you think, you know, you've done the right thing, and another moment you realize I have not done the right thing. So a novel like Crime and Punishment, which is in the third person, nonetheless goes inside Russ Kolnikov's head again and again, as he is wrestling with the fact that he has committed murder. Rather, you know, was going to commit a murder, wasn't sure if he could commit a murder, thinks he can't do this thinks he shouldn't do this thinks he must do this does it and then spends, you know, 400 pages dealing with it but it's not the first person where he's often being described as having feelings occasionally we go inside him as he thinks the difference in a novel like John Fosses is that he's attempting to produce a text which isn't a text it's something that like you know early modernist text, is trying to give you this magical capacity to enter another brain And, you know, experience it, which is different from a brain which is being put down in an ordered way to give us a sense of how one might think, you know, helping us think through things. And Montaigne is a very good example of an early first person narrator who's writing, in that case, essays in which we're watching his thinking and watching his indecision. But he's writing this. He's quoting other writers. We're aware that this is an attempt to order things because that's what he's trying to do, put them in order. He's trying this is an attempt at putting forward disorder and all brains are disordered as you said they're you know they're non sequential non linear you know scattered rambling and that kind of attempt to show that is just another attempt formally and stylistically to get us closer to what it is to be a human being how we function and the novel's magical about this because it has so many different strategies for and have we have had so many different strategies through time to be immersed in a time-based experience, six hours of reading, 12 hours of reading, 20 days of reading one book, because some books are longer than others, where we're just immersed in another world. But in the case of, of a novel like Septology, we're immersed in this extremely disordered way of thinking, which as I think you got to at the end of your question, produces questions about what a self is. And metaphysically, what one is reckoning with when one uses the word I. And one of the things I didn't mention in the review, and I have translated Rambeau's work, so I'm familiar with the idea that is the title for the second part of the novel, which is I as another. So that comes from Rambeau in Je est un autre, I as another self, I as someone else, or I as another. And I think one of the things FOSSA is doing is really asking what an individual is. And as, as you mentioned, all the characters have very similar names, which makes us actually as we're reading, at least it did me, fight to retain a sense of who we're talking about. Yeah. So we're slipping into different selves on top of the idea that we're in a self. So the way in which I think Fossa is new, and that is a claim I'm making is the degree to which he's not just, say, going into Molly Bloom and trying to perform the interstate of the person we've heard so much about. Rather, he's going into a person and slipping us into all the people around him with an understanding that the reader is going to be you know, unmoored through this. Then the question is, what does that do? And do we like it? And how does it make us feel? Is it pleasurable? is it unpleasurable in a way that's useful or is it just you know incredibly frustrating these are all questions that a reader will meet when they read a novel like this
0: yeah this novel isn't so big on plot the plot is very simple and it's more about the experience of going through these small gestures of going through these sort of basic tasks and encountering these different people who may not be different people at all or remembering someone from the past. So could you talk about the story of the novel, and how these different things bleed together and how Asle, the narrator's consciousness is sort of leading us through these events?
1: So the novel is in seven parts, and they begin in the same way. Asle, the painter, uh, whose late career has made his, his life painting and, and selling his paintings to uh, afford that life, sits in front of an easel where he's looking at a painting of two lines that cross. And that's how every of the seven parts of this thousand-page novel, every one of the parts begins. And by the time we get to the end of each of these seven parts, Ozil is in prayer. We get it in English translation through Damien Searles. It's an amazing translation in the sense of its light-footedness and the complexity of the book. But... Ozil prays in English, he prays in Latin, he prays in German, it just depends, but he prays at the end. And so you have the shape for each section. Beyond that, in terms of what is happening in the book, Osel is a painter who's about to deliver his latest batch of paintings to his dealer in a city that's a few hours drive from where he lives on the coast. And the main motor of the novel is the engine of the car that he's driving. He is driving to the city. To deliver paintings, coming home, and then he will have dinner. The real drama one could say is, when will he have supper and with whom will he have it? Because (laughs) that, that is delayed into the final volume. So not the most scintillating plot. And so plot is subsumed into Ozil in some way in his brain, moving through space as he takes in the world. Much of what he's taking in is repetitive, you know, a snowy road, a place where he's parked, a bar, which he goes to for reasons which are more complicated. But the basic idea is man delivers paintings, man goes home. So, you know, there's a short story by Beckett to whom Fossa is often compared, and yet the two writers are distinct. There's a short story by Beckett, the name of which I don't recall, but which is the scintillating story of a minute hand going around a wristwatch. And so Beckett is narrating that fascinating activity, which is to say not at all fascinating, but the way he's doing it is kind of remarkable. In other words, you are actually briefly fascinated by the path of a second-hand around the face of a watch. So there is a similar attenuation of attention to that, but not over you know two pages, but over a thousand. And The question of whether or not, once we get into it, it's telling a different story, to me is answered by the experience that you have once you're 10 baffling pages in, 20 less baffling pages in, and suddenly maybe 30 pages in, you're going, oh, I'm feeling this now, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm feeling that I'm being moved, not emotionally at that point, but physically and metaphysically, you are being pushed through space in your mind, through these transits of Ozzel's thinking, and as it deepens, we grow more sure-footed. The repetitions begin to feel musical, the touching back into parts of Ozzel's past, because that's the undercurrent of the forward motion, he's looking back. Or can't but have flashes of the past, which are then informed by his thinking through. There are these little teasing leitmotifs, which dilate as you read further. And you get more information in the way the novel likes to deliver information and always has, which is the story of somebody. So in many ways, you know, to use the fancy term buildings room on, you know, a novel of development, that's what this is. In that case, it's very familiar. You know, bright young child, talented with own desires and interests in the world, meets with adults who have no interest in the child's interests. The child perseveres despite the violence of childhood becomes an individual who makes art, makes art. So, you know, we're all interested in, you know, so how did Picasso become Picasso? How did Joyce become Joyce? That kind of thing. And yet that's familiar and a little bit, you know, dull in the fact that we've seen it so many times. And yet what we've seen is the way people have seen it. And Fossa is giving us a new way of experiencing it, not at the level of plot, which nonetheless is important to this novel, but at the experience of dealing with that life through the magic of trying to present the mind at work and the confusions that obtain. And then the, you might say, solution to those confusions, which in this novel formally is prayer. And every time Oswald tries to set out for the city, succeeding or failing, he gets to a point where after having fought all sorts of Disordered thoughts, which nonetheless take order in the reader's mind, since we're all detectives searching for you know how things work, how things fall together. He, in some way, falls apart to the point where he puts himself back together by aping the lines that you know billions of people have aped through you know, two thousand years, and settling into the act of asking to be forgiven for being. Human.
0: Right. I, this might be a very basic question, but perhaps it is the best way to approach something like this. You know, as you noted, each section begins identically where he's looking at the painting and saying, it's finished. How do you feel that functions within Fosse's project or even just the, the narrative or the the style of the book itself? Well,
1: on a basic level, you know, it's, it's- Easy to see and you know perhaps too easy to see that Oswald is a stand-in as an artist for you know the writer. Oswell is looking at lines, the writer writes lines, Oswell is deciding whether or not the lines that he set down are finished, writers question whether or not the lines they've set down are finished. And there is a question given that we and we haven't said this, you know, it's not just a thousand pages, it's a thousand pages that don't have a period. Each of the sections, you know, begins and ends, but without uh, a full stop. And so the question of finishedness, which is you know, foregrounded at the beginning of each section, is formally present in the way the books work. I'm calling them books just because they haven't published it as three books with a varying number of parts in them. But you know, the yes, it's one novel. So how does that function you know i think and i I say this at the beginning of my review talking about this this cave Lombos, where some of the earliest traces of of human activity and making uh, are found some hundred thousand to seventy thousand years ago this cave was occupied and people were making all kinds of things out of ochre which included a crayon a proto-crayon where we find this piece of stone which has uh, nine lines that cross and the concordance between Ozel's line writing or writer's line writing you know roots back to this old and basic human activity in which we put things down, we make marks on whatever we can find, whether it's stone or bone or papyrus or paper or canvas or in a score that is you know a transcription of music. Why do we do it? You know are we individuals? Uh, who are making things or are we part of a more collective project? That seems to be something that's underpinned through what's going on here. A different and less early kind of early human trace, there's a cave Sulawesi, which is in the Melee Archipelago, um, which Alfred Russell Wallace explored extensively. Wallace was a colleague of Darwin's who was a naturalist who did far more field work and developed a theory of, of natural selection in parallel to Darwin, though, Darwin was the first one to write it up. And it seems that Wallace had no rancor about that at all. He just was fascinated by species. And um, in Harper's, listeners can look up a great story by Daniel Mason that appeared in her pages called The Ecstasy of Alfred Russel Wallace, which is a fictional account of Wallace's adventures, which comes from reading the Melee Archipelago. I am mentioning all this because Wallace, who was interested in everything Went to the area where it turns out there were the caves that later you would find stuff that was done on the walls by humans. He had no interest. He just kind of moved on. We don't know if he actually saw the walls, but I mention this because on one of those walls we have the earliest artistic so called trace by a human being, and that's a handprint. We're familiar with these as being you know marks that humans have made, but the earliest ones we found are 45,000 years ago in this cave in Indonesia. And so What's to me at least super interesting about that kind of first human trace, in which an artist's mark can be understood to be an artist, is it's a human hand. You know, we we have earlier stuff of people drawing lines, but the first time we actually have kind of, and I'm going to call it autobiography, is mm-hmm. when we actually see a hand up there, and you can imagine the moment where the hand was put on the wall and they blow the paint onto the wall from their mouths and they remove their hand and look, there they are. And I think from that point forward, it's very easy to say that we've been preoccupied with the story of the self, but also asking the question, which is depicted on these walls, well, there are a lot of different hands and it's not all the same guy uh, or person who's done it. So is there a difference? So I think that, you know, the the function of this, this beginning in the Fossa um, novel is to. Pose the question yet again of what is an individual mark and what is a mark made by an individual, and what is the value in doing this sort of thing?
0: Yeah, and speaking of the painting of the lines, of the of the potential meaning of that throughout the novel, there's there's not just a doubling or sort of blurring of people, but also of objects and objects that are tied to people. Looking at page 20, where he's describing this. I call it the main room or the living room. And I see the brown leather shoulder bag hanging on the hook above the paintings I put aside, the ones I'm not totally satisfied with, the ones lean against the wall between the bedroom door and the hall door. And when I go out, I always take the brown shoulder bag with me. And I keep a sketch pad and a pencil in it, I think, and I see the shoulder bag there on the passenger seat next to me, and I'm driving north, and I think how I'm looking forward to getting back home to my good old house in Dilga. And I see myself standing. And looking at the round table by the window and the two empty chairs next to the table, there's a black velvet jacket hanging over the back of one of those chairs. Yes, the jacket I'm wearing there on the chair closest to the bench, the chair where I always used to sit and Alice used to sit in the chair next to it. That was her chair. So this is objects move his consciousness through memory to action. It's kind of like a different way of moving through the story or creating the story in lieu of plot, let's say.
1: Uh, First of all, I think everybody listening would agree that it was wonderful to listen to Fossa read and in this case read by you because at least I was uh, smiling and felt very opened by listening to that. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I haven't heard it read to me. I've I've just read it in silence. And it's so interesting that the book ends in prayer, which is the speaking aloud of, you know, in, in this case, he's, he's working the beads of his rosary. And I'm fairly certain that if we were to you know, have been present for him, we would have heard his prayer. And to hear you reading it, you know, all the abstraction of what we've said so far, just you go, oh, it sounds like a human voice that's talking about you know some things that are very uh, approachable to us which is the stuff that we have around us you know we cling to things. in buddhism we would say that it's we we develop attachments and those attachments bring us suffering because you know we will not have them so to, to insist upon having is is the, is one of the sources of dukkha or suffering so so the first thing i would say is having the sound of Fossa in our ears as he read it makes this seem very straightforward. And what's hard about it for us readers is that we're not hearing it. We're being forced by our eyes to move through it. So one of the things that I think Fossa is doing that's super effective is that he's aware that you've got a, and this is kind of like, you know, now we're on a cooking show, you know, he's making sure that he is putting the things into the lines that we can get a grip on as he's moving back and forth. Because in the passage you read, he's in his house and then he's in his car and the link is the, is the bag or it's the velvet jacket. And that's very important for the reader and it's really smart tactically by Fawcett because we're shuttling and shifting all over the place. We need something to hold on to. So he gives us clothes, say, and it gets even trickier because as you say, there are characters who there seems to be a doubling and one is his wife or his late wife. And so that's all set. But there's also another Ozzel in the book who is also a painter, who also has a shoulder bag, like the shoulder bag that uh, Ozel has, who also has a black velvet jacket, whom Ozel, who apparently is telling the story through his brain voice, will meet. And perhaps the book shifts into the other Ozzel's perspective. I mean. We start to have all these shifts, but there's tangible evidence of the thingness of the world for the reader to retain as we're kind of being shuttled back and forth. So I think the utility of that and the recognition that, you know, there are physical things that we hold to amidst all the metaphysical shift is sweet in the way that if we we think about our lives, there is something sweet about a child who needs a stuffy. Or an adult who needs you know I, I teach I, I try to wear the same clothes when I teach most of the time because then I don't have to think at all about my clothes or my appearance or anything like that I can focus on the job at hand because I'm comforted by in this case you know the familiarity of what is around me um, palpably and I think Fossa is doing something similar in the way that he's clothing the narrative so that we can retain some of the control that we typically have in a more typical novel where we don't have to hold on so tight to the edges of the pages.
0: A few years ago, you wrote an essay for the New York Times Style Magazine about the relationship between asceticism and writing, where you suggested that asceticism might describe the approach of today's writers better than, you know, this. 20th century picture of the writer as some Dionysian hedonist. And septology is very much concerned with the connection between asceticism and art and what you call, quote, the welter and waste of a single solitary life, end quote. So what does this novel have to say about the choice or the need to live ascetically? And would you describe Fossa himself as an ascetic?
1: I know nothing about Fossa that I haven't, you know, uh, picked at in the little notices that you find online. The only biographical detail of any you know, note which would relate in some way to this novel, though I'm, I'm definitely at the camp that we don't need such things. The novel should take care of itself um, without, you know, biographical support from the, the writer on book tour. No offense to the writer on book tour, you need to go on tour, whether Zoom or actual, to get people to pay attention to your books by showing that you yourself are worth attention. But um, <laughs> that's a different conversation. W- what I would say is that I know that Fossa drank and then he gave up drinking. And the the Ozel who's at the center of this novel, is a painter who used to drink and gave it up. And then there's the other Ozel in the novel who is himself a painter who has the same kind of bag and the same kind of jacket and who both Ozzles have been in the same room together. We get that sort of narratively, which is confusing, but that Ozil drinks. And so the Ozil who doesn't drink, who's the painter, who we think is the focus of the book, is someone who comes into contact with the other Ozil, who's a painter who seems to be a less successful painter and who does drink. So yes, asceticism. So the Ozel, who seems to be the focus of this book, lives in a tiny seaside town alone in a completely empty house, except for his paintings that are in storage in the attic and his paintings that he's completed and he's taken to his gallery and he wears the exact same thing every day. And, you know, certainly his life seems to be circumscribed and uh, scrubbed clean of any identifying details that would distract. You know, there isn't... The scene where he gets a text message, you know, or whatever. Um, uh-huh. That's just not that's just not the world that's being presented. Now, one thing that I was struck by when reading this novel, which goes beyond asceticism, is we never get to see the painter paint. You know, we don't get that scene where the writer attempts to perform painting. And there's a writer I translated named Pierre Michon who has has written five novella about uh, about and around painters called Masters and Servants and. In these five painter stories, we do at different moments see different painters painting. They're all based in historical figures. So I was kind of struck that we didn't have the painting scene. But that tells us something I think really interesting about the kind of book Foss is trying to make. It's really not about painting. It's not about art making. And so the question of whether asceticism is something that Fossa is advocating for is necessary for the production of art. I don't think it's that kind of book at all. I think that the the metaphor of staring at lines that cross at staring at a cross it's much more a religious novel in that way and it's a question of you know in the spiritual sense of you know what is one doing with one's earthly life what does it mean when we make marks and what is the what is the course of life that we are taking and the novel seems to perform the idea of a movement to death the philosophical idea is to to you know, prepare to die. And that's the feeling that I think this book produces or did in me: this idea of a movement towards the things one would say, to sustain one through life and to prepare one for death. And in that way, you know, asceticism is a word that comes up as a and an idea that comes up as a response to the gluttony of, of human life where you need food and you know, where. For the most part, feast or famine for for the hundreds of thousands of years of Homo sapiens being on the planet. You know, we, we, we didn't have a store, so you would have to you would have to get very hungry and kill something or find something you could eat. I imagine that those feastings were hard to watch because you know we would <laughs> we would be devouring things with an animal hunger, and so the idea of asceticism now is that you know we have too much. And that's certainly present in this book, but I don't think it's necessarily his his game.
0: I read a piece by the translator, Damien Searles, where he talks about translating the novel. And he says that as he was translating it, and at every stage of the translation, there were parts where he was very moved, and one part in particular where he was moved to tears, going through this, the the meticulousness of translating and reading and rereading and rereading, it always would hit him. Were there any parts that sort of drew out that type of intense emotion for you? And was it sort of surprising that, well, no, it's not surprising. Because this novel is so intimate, I guess it's perhaps not surprising that one might have such an emotional reaction to a particular part.
1: Yeah, it's such an interesting question about the role of the reader's emotions in the experiencing of a work of art. There's in James Wood's first novel, The Book Against God, there's a moment where the protagonist, who has no real ear for music and who is married to uh, a woman who I believe is a pianist, but regardless of the precision of that, he goes to the symphony with his wife and they're sitting together and the protagonist is struck by a moment in the music where a few seats beyond him, there is a man in the same row who is shaking with sobs. And the narrator describes how his seat shook in sympathy with the shaking of, of sobs of this large man down the row while he himself is not moved. So the proximity to the emotion of others before a work of art we'll have different emotional reactions and Searle's you know I envy Searle's ability to read the original because he's reading at a far slower pace than any reader will be. And that's the most intimate form of, of communion with a literary work is to translate it because you have to give thought to everything, every single you know pause, every single word, phrase, etc. So in terms of my reaction, I mean, I'm hesitant to say or to judge a book too much. And I know you're not asking me to do this by my emotional response to it, because I get moved by when we had TV, I get moved by TV commercials. You know, it's not very hard to move me. I am very easily moved and moved by things that are kind of silly. You know, I've cried at superhero comic books like X Men 136 or 137 or Gene Grey. I mean, things that I'm embarrassed about now because they've been. Open.
0: Well, that is sad. Come on. No, it is. But, you know, I, then I think
1: of how the movies have destroyed, you know, in some way my imagination of that because I, you know, anyway, the, the idea that one can be moved by something is important. I'm a human being, I want to be moved. You know, that's, uh, I can't not be. In terms of this novel, I think for me at least, what is striking about the role of emotion in it is that it's constant. And once you get into the movement of the book and the way that Fossa is pushing us along and we get caught up in that movement, what's remarkable about it is that by the time you get to the end of the first of the seven parts, You know, you go, oh, okay, he prays. That was very moving, you might say to yourself. But once you get into the movement of the next six parts, you are pretty sure where this is going. And so you're moving through all this emotional difficulty that Ozil is putting forward, the difficulty of a boyhood, the difficulty of an adulthood, of love and loss. And we begin to feel where it's going. And where it's going is to Ozil praying because he needs it. And we begin to meet it with him. And so that becomes a totality of moving through the movement of the book. By the time you get to part three, it begins again with the painting. It goes through the will he get to the town, will he delivers it. But you know where it's going. It's going to the place where Oswald prays. And so unlike the emotional experience that, you know, say at the end of Freedom, uh, Franson's novel, you know, I remember reading that and coming to the end and just bursting into tears and throwing the book across the room just because I needed to get the thing away from me because it was just like, oh my God, I've just been completely, I just got sucker punched in a good way in the sense like I did not see that coming. You've artfully withheld information that now that the story ends this way, I'm just thunderstruck. you know. Mm-hmm. And good God, I love that. That's one of the reasons I read novels. I want that to happen. Yeah. And in that novel, that didn't feel cheap at all. It felt like he took 550 pages to deliver me to the place that the novel wanted to go. There are a lot of kind of more incidental, you know, being moved and things, which, you know, depending upon the art of the, of the author are either kind of cheap or are just, you know, organic and beautiful. What strikes me about this novel is how it's not based in incident. It's based in form. And so, the idea that he takes us through and then puts us down into this place of comfort after so much discomfort that was moving to me. And so that's a very different experience of what it meant to have an emotional reaction to a literary, a work of literary art.
0: Well, I think we'll end it there, but thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. And, uh, I'm sorry if I just was, rambling (laughs) at first this is a yeah it's such a broad but also very simple novel that it's kind of like where
1: it's super hard to talk about this stuff what i mean I, i know we're wrapping up but one of the things i would say is you know in trying to write about a book like this you know you're you're trying not to put forward an idea of this book which is false Which inevitably you'll do because you can't possibly put forward an idea of this book except in quoting it. And one of the, you know, fun experiences I had with um, my editor at the magazine is that, you know, we were trying to figure out how much we could quote that would give enough of an idea of what it feels like to read Fossa that you might go, Oh, that's interesting. I want to read more of that. And that's always the case with, with anything that you're writing about, but particularly difficult with Fossa because it, you know, the form, it, it dilates, And, mm-hmm. you know, really hard to talk about a book like that. But as a critic, just trying to type all the different names of the characters that are almost the same, the number of times I misspelled Ossal as Alsa and Aless and all this stuff, I just, that was driving me crazy. And so to be able to talk about it all, I think one has to read.
0: And I don't think you were rambling, but anyway. Okay, thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. This is very enlightening, so thank you very of much. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation, through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.